Hello and welcome to the Pat King Show. I am your host, the Pat King. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to tune in today. I created this podcast for the sole purpose of helping everyone who listens and for the betterment of all people. This is a platform where we can unite and share stories of personal triumph, pain, successes, and failures so that we can learn from each other and become the best versions of ourselves. I get together with people from all backgrounds to have serious, real, raw, and hopefully even some fun conversations about health, fitness, wellness, personal and professional development, recovery, and even some brief discussions on current events as it pertains to helping people. My life's passion is to work on being a better human each day before my feet even hit the floor so that I can best serve others while they're on their journeys of personal transformation and hopefully empower them to chase their passions and their dreams. I hope you can take at least one thing away from this podcast that will help lift you up in some area of your life. Enjoy the show and be sure to stay tuned at the end for some special announcements. Don't worry, I'm not going to try to sell you anything. I promise. All right, we are live. Welcome to the Pat King Show. I am your host, the Pat King. And today I've got a special treat for you. Um, Before I introduce this very special guest, I'll give you a little background on how I came to ask him to be on the show. Uh, Over the course of the last few years, I've dedicated my life to improving myself and, you know, being the maximum service to others. And, you know, during that period, I've devoured a lot of books related to understanding our minds, uh, how our, and how our physical brains work. Uh, In addition, I've also done, you know, a bunch of courses, neurolinguistics, uh, fundamentals of neuroscience through Harvard, uh, and which was way far over my head, (laughs) but beyond the, beyond the level of understanding for this dummy, but I've also uh, gone through some of the other related programs as well. And I don't say any of that to impress you. uh, Like I did this, I only tell you that so that I can explain the contrast between everything else that I've done and read and the programs that I've gone through um, in contrast with the book uh, from of our guest today, all the books and programs that I've gone through Um, are pretty kind of not necessarily high level on all of them, but not so practical. So the author of the book from today is, uh, I believe it's the most practical uh, book or program that it's applicable for the average person that can understand and apply their life. Uh, And I don't recommend a lot of things typically like on social media and stuff. It's one of the few things that probably most of you have seen if you follow me, uh, the book is on there. So there's a lot of information out there and a majority of it's difficult to comprehend. But this book is, I think it's perfect for everybody. Everyone should read it. I'm a huge raving fan. So with that being said, get ready to get ready to detox your mind for clear thinking, deeper relationships, and lasting happiness with a best-selling author of the New York Times best-selling book, Brainwash. I give you Mr. Austin Perlometer. Welcome, Austin. Pat, thank you so much for having me. And let me also just say, as a general word of thanks, uh, I really appreciate what it is that you're doing here in having these types of conversations. And as you alluded to, we are flooded with information these days. We are 
under this kind of a waterfall of all of the things that we need to do to improve our quality of life. But so little of that is translated into action. And I think that it is in part because of conversations like the one we're having right now that we can start to see through some of all of the, you know, the information that doesn't have value and start to understand what is pragmatic. Uh, what are the things that actually translate into lasting benefits in our lives? And that was really the goal with this book is to try to convert all of this information that's out there in the scientific sphere into actionable steps so that whoever you are, you could start making those changes to your life in such a way that it would give you the ability to then make the changes that you wanted to in anything. So it's really not about knowing the information. It's about having the tools to make it happen, to make it follow through. And, and Brainwash is all about programming your brain to enable you to have that possibility. So thanks again for having me on. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to give a little background on your experience and you know, sure. where you come from and everything? Yeah. Uh, well, I was born, uh, not really. Um, so the notable <laughs> things in my background here, I would say for, for all intents and purposes, I had a pretty standard kind of medical upbringing. My dad is a doctor, his dad is a doctor. I went to medical school at the University of Miami, and then I continued my training in internal medicine uh, at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. So I'm board certified in internal medicine. And those are just kind of the, the background details, which are important to understand, because I would say that my training is perhaps the best representation of the typical allopathic um, medical training in the United States. And that's kind of like the uh, status quo as far as knowing the necessary information to be able to manage um, heart disease and diabetes and hypertension and to some extent depression, right? These chronic diseases that are the top causes of morbidity and mortality in the modern world as well as the top costs in the modern world. These are the, the big issues we face. And so again, I did this training but my assumption was at the time that this training would prepare me to properly manage these conditions. That when I completed this uh, seven years of medical training, I would go out into the community, work in a clinic, and I would be able to reverse and cure these diseases that are so prevalent today. Um, what I realized along the road is that this training is good for slowing the rate of decline for these conditions. It's good at helping somebody with diabetes to not have as many complications. It's good at helping somebody with high blood pressure to maybe bring it down a little bit, but never really reversing the causes of these problems. And so the issue is what is going on below the surface, right? What's happening underneath the hood that is causing us to get all of these preventable conditions and you know, as it relates to this book, what my dad and I looked at was, how is it that despite knowing all the right information, we keep making the wrong decisions? That we know that these relationships that we're in with other people are bad for us. Everyone tells us we understand it and yet we keep going back to them. That when it relates to our foods, we know that eating donuts is bad for us. We all know that. And yet mm -hmm. we're still out there buying junk food and eating donuts. So there's obviously this gap here between the information available and what people are actually doing. And so in Brainwash, what my dad and I wanted to explore is what are the science-based interventions that we can take 
to enable us to have the opportunity to actually have our decisions reflect what we care about, as opposed to what is the unfortunate reality, which is that most of our choices are out of sync with our long-term goals. They're mostly impulsive, short-term oriented. We're spending hours a day on social media. We're eating junk foods. We know that's not gonna get us closer to what we care about in life, and yet we keep doing it. So what can we do for our brains that is going to enable us to not make those bad decisions as often, to give us the possibility of making the good choice? And you know, at a, at a deeper level now, um, the book has been out for several months and we've been in this research for several years. What I understand is that so much of this is a question of our psychology. It's a question of how our early life influences affect our psychological programming and how that then distorts the way that we see reality and make choices. And that also obviously is integrated into what physically changes in our brains and our bodies. What are the things that are different in our brains that then contribute to our ability to make good decisions or bad decisions, that then contribute to our ability to be uh, able to calm down our emotional reactivity. And so I really think that's where the meat of all of this is. That's where the rubber meets the road. If you want to start making better decisions, if you want to start reaching the outcomes you care about, you can read all the self-help books you want, you know, have at it. Self-help is a $10 billion a year industry. Obviously, there are a lot of people out there who are making their living telling you what to do. But I think that for the most part, there are, uh, most people are out there, you know, liking YouTube videos and reading the Medium articles and going to the courses even and feel like by proxy, they've changed their lives because, you know, Tony Robbins is up there on stage and he's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that because they've done something amazing and you showed up that all of a sudden your life is different. And in fact, that's kind of the challenge of human life is how do you actually get yourself to change and get closer to your objectives? And I want to say, I'm, I'm not trying to knock Tony Robbins. I think he does right. amazing stuff. Sure. But just in general, we've got all of the information out there as far as where we're trying to get to. What we don't have is the tools to get us there. And to reiterate this, I think it really begins with understanding the neuroscience of decision-making and the underlying psychological mechanisms that predispose us to certain patterns of behavior. Right. Um, so that would lead me to the question. The first question that I wanted to ask you would be, uh, as far as it comes, when it comes to, so we learn all these things and we know what we're supposed to do. And, um, and if we, if we have like the steps that we're supposed to take and the things like, if we don't have the support in our environment, um, how do you, how do we overcome, how do we overcome? Yeah you know, overcome that because I mean, you're right. We, we have a lot of information. Um, and I, I forget more than what I retain when it comes to information. And, um, and even if I, even if I know sometimes, um, some people out there, you know, I, I do pretty good, but I, there's a lot of people out there that struggle with taking that consistent action when they know what to do, but their environment might not ne necessarily be, uh, conducive to that. Yeah, well, Pat, I think you make a good point here. And that is, I think the majority of us struggle to follow through on the things we care about. You know, everyone has their New Year's resolutions, but most people drop off. And again, that's, I don't look at it as any fault of their own. I just think that it's hard 
to get yourself to do something that you're not doing. Otherwise, you'd already be doing it, right? It's nothing too complicated mm. there. But you also referenced another really important point, which is the uh, significance of environment. And so I guess before we get to that, I would just like to tell listeners or viewers that I think it's really important before whatever it is that you want to do. I mean, the first step is to decide why do you actually want to do that? So you say, I want to make a million dollars. I say, sit down and ask why, because there are obvious compromises you're going to have to make if that's really what you care about. And I think that most people are setting surrogate outcomes, whatever it might be, even things like weight loss. Um, mm. They're using those things because what they really want is safety. What they really want is to feel connected to other people. What they really want is more long-term satisfaction. And so these are these surrogates and we set those as our goals and then we, for, we forget that we really need to reflect on those and kind of tweak them as we learn more about ourselves. And this is actually one of my biggest gripes with the way our education model works is we kind of set this outcome is I want to be a lawyer. In my case, I want to be a doctor. And therefore, mm. once I become a doctor, everything will be taken care of, not realizing that in the example of medicine, doctors are not happier than the average people. Rate of burnout for doctors is 50%. The rate of depression and suicide for doctors is higher than the average person. So that's not a good outcome. In any case, the point I wanted to make is, first of all, you need to reflect on what it is you actually care about. And that's kind of another discussion. But once you've done that, then you need to say, how can I optimize for that outcome? And so as it relates to changing our behavior, I think there are kind of these two major contributors to the ability to change our behavior. One of those is our conscious decision-making and our ability to kind of, um, in the moment, think through A versus B. And then the other is our unconscious programming. And so that has more to do with things like habits, things that happen in the background. And they're both really big as it relates to making decisions. We have this idea that if we want to do something differently, all we have to do is remember that in the moment of decision and we'll do it. And it's just obviously not the case. I think that a lot of the actual decision is made before the moment of decision making. And let me say that again, because it, it's kind of an interesting point. By the time you get to a decision, so let's say you're at your friend's birthday party and there's a piece of chocolate cake and you've decided you don't want to be somebody who eats chocolate cake. You're trying to lose weight. You're on a diet. By the time that piece of chocolate cake gets in front of you, most of that decision has already been made because the unconscious influences are huge. You're smelling that. That's activating hormones in your brain that are going to change your preference for that cake. You have the social cues, right? You don't want to disappoint the person next to you. So what I'm saying is the best way to make a good decision around the chocolate cake is not to put yourself in that position in the first place. So then that gets to the question of your environment and how that affects decision-making. And I think it's huge. I think it's hugely undervalued how much the environment shapes the choices that we make. And so that's everything from you know, the people you're around to the context. For example, if you're looking on a menu and your goal is to, let's say, be cost conscious of what you're ordering on the menu, and the restaurant just throws out a ridiculous price that the most expensive item on the menu is $80, and then the next most expensive item is $50. Because they set that initial price, you will look at the $50 meal as cheap compared to right the $80 plus meal. And so you're more likely to pick that. So that's like an environmental issue that we need to be aware of. So it's all about these environmental cues. Other things would be, let's say your goal is not to drink coffee in the morning, but you always walk into that environment in your office where there's the free coffee sitting there with the cups. Everyone else is drinking it. You're smelling it. You're a whole lot more likely <laughs> to drink that coffee. And by the way, I have nothing against coffee. I 
<laughs> Actually, I just had some coffee myself. Excellent. But, but the point is, if you're aware of what you want to get to, and then you're aware of the factors that are contributing to the decisions that you have to understand as far as getting to that outcome, then you can start making choices. So this is a very long-winded explanation to get to your Good. specific question. Your specific question is, what, is, what do you do if your environment is stacked against you? What do you do if your significant other that you live with has a obsession with eating uh, refined carbohydrates? What if they're a baker, right? And you're trying to go keto and they're baking muffins in the kitchen all day long. That's not so easy. So, you know, there isn't going to be a blanket statement that I can give you here. The, the point is though, that there are still things that you can do. So as an example, um, one, of the, one of the better examples I like to give people is, when you go to a grocery store and you're hungry, you're going to buy more food and unhealthy food. That's just what happens. If you are going to be in a situation where unhealthy foods are going to be in front of you and there's nothing you can do, let's say you have to go to your mother-in-law's house and she is going to be preparing you know, a giant pasta meal, you're trying to go keto, there's an obvious conflict coming up. So you can do a couple of things. One is you can pretend you're sick. Not a great option. You're gonna use up that excuse pretty quickly. The other is you can make a, a clear statement at the meal, which is, I'm not doing this right now. Uh, I'm not eating carbs and risk potentially damaging those relationships. And then there's kind of the middle ground mitigation piece, which is you eat a big healthy meal before you go. And then that way, when you get there, you're first of all, you're not as hungry, um, but you can also kind of feed that into your explanation, saying, look, I'm doing this other thing, have a little bit of the pasta, but your neurotransmitters aren't going against you and saying, hey, you know what? We're really hungry right now. We need to eat that big bowl of pasta. Forget about all the other stuff, but it's here, it's in front of me. So again, that's just one example, but I think that the key is to be creative in the decision-making around it. If you can avoid it altogether, fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you can do things to mitigate the overall risk, even you know, that might be necessary. That might be the only option. So let's say it's not your mother-in-law, but you're going into the office and everyone in there is eating the free muffins that your boss always brings in. You ate a big bowl of scrambled eggs and kale beforehand or whatever it is that you want to eat. You're not going to be as tempted to eat that muffin. So you're not working against yourself. And really at the end of the day, it's all about yourself. It's all about either are you working with yourself or against yourself? And I think that as it relates to challenging environmental situations, there's a key that I think is relevant really across all behavioral change, which is you need to be planning for your future self, not your present self. So if you're messing up right now, learn about what's going on. Don't blame yourself, right? Don't try to force yourself out of that situation. Plan for tomorrow, plan for a week from now, because those are the situations in which you're going to have more control. And so that means, you know, if you live with a bunch of other people in your house and they don't eat very healthy, maybe plan for creating your own shelf of food in the kitchen, right? Don't figure it out during the meal where you've just been served a big plate of whatever and you feel really awkward saying no. So these are just some thoughts. Again, there's no blanket catch-all statement I can make, but there are still things to do. And I don't discount the fact that it can be really challenging depending on your environment to follow through on the things that you care about. Oh, last thing I would say on that, and you know, probably the most relevant thing as it relates to the book that we wrote, which is, again, you don't wanna be working against yourself. And if any component of your poor decision-making is due to you feeling like it was just too hard to make the right decision, even though you knew what it was and you would have been happier had you made a different decision, 
then that's the time to work on your brain. Mm. Work on your brain so that it's easier to make the right decision. And we can talk about each of these things individually, but what we describe in the book is how everything from getting better sleep to exercising to eating the right foods to meditating can help you to create a brain that is on your side at the point of decision-making. So you're not trying your absolute best to force yourself to make a good decision, but instead you and your brain are on the same team. You know what I mean? It's like showing up to something with a good friend or with uh, a significant other and you both agree this is or isn't something you want to do. That's what it could be like with your brain so that you're not sitting there with that cupcake in front of you saying, oh, I really want it, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to cheat on my diet. So that instead your brain saying, no, we're not doing this. And you say, yeah, of course we're not doing this. And it doesn't get eaten. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's so many things in your book that, um, you know, that are applicable to the programs that I have to help people and um, so much similarity. And, uh, you know, uh, we have to, you mentioned something that made me think of this is I have to, I always constantly tell people that you have to think about the person that you want to be, like not who you are today, not your past, not, not what you went through, but in my mindset, and I don't really like using mindset, it's overused so much, but, um, you have to focus on the person that you want to be. And are, are you, do you want to be the person, the type of person that eats cake? Or do you want to be the type of person that doesn't eat cake? You know? Yeah. Um, so I guess two things there. One is, I agree with you. I think that the present and past selves are very helpful in educating us on what is most likely to happen, our patterns of behavior. And so we can use that to get to our future selves. Um, but the other kind of deeper point that I heard from what you were saying is we really want to create an identity that is consistent with the decisions that we want to be making. Um, I think that, you know, well, this is kind of a psychological concept um, that Carl Rogers came up with, the ideal self, and the idea that there is the person we want to be, and then there's the person we actually are. And it's the distance between those two people that causes us to have a lot of uh, kind mm -hmm. of psychological grief. And so the more that we can reshape our identity to be consistent with who we actually are, uh, or the more we can reshape our ideal self to be consistent with our identity, I should say, the better for us. And you know what we know is that when we're under stress, when we're under chronic stress, anxiety, our decisions are worse. So we'd be more likely to eat junk food or less likely to exercise. And so what that tells me is there's kind of this interesting um, psychological manifestation here, which is if we create an unrealistic version of ourselves where we're never eating junk food, and even if we're doing pretty well, we always have that gap, that's going to cause us stress. That stress is actually going to make us less likely to get to that ideal version of ourselves. It's going to compromise our decision-making. So to this end, I think it's really important, yes, to start creating a better identity, but to do it in small ways. And instead of saying, my identity is the person who never eats carbohydrates, my identity is the person who is 100% plant-based. Look, I'm not taking mm. away from plant-based diets. They can be great. Depending on who you are, they can be great. But to say my identity is somebody who is willing to change, who is willing to improve. And if you make it small like that, then you can start saying, I'm the type of person who brushes my teeth twice a day. Mm -hmm. That's enough. Yeah. Because then you're starting to create that story, that internal identity of somebody who is successful at changing who they are for the better. You're no longer the person who says, my identity is the person who loses 30 pounds in two weeks where you fail. And then again, that gap 
increases between your ideal self and actual self, you develop stress and you become less likely to continue to improve. So I think it's all about an iterative change mm -hmm. with small changes that over time will enable you to get to that person that you want to become. Yeah. So yeah, it's about creating those, those tiny habits, like starting with the little habits. And, you know, for me, like I started with, you know, in the morning, the very first thing, and I, it's still my mantra still to this day, you know, a little over three years ago, like I, when I got sober from drinking and I was struggling to function because I was in a fog and, you know, daily drinking, I'm sure you can imagine, but, um, you know, you just, you're not, I wasn't all there. So I needed some time for my mind to clear up. Um, and the only thing I could focus on every day was my mantra is just, you know, I want to be a little bit better than I was yesterday. I'm committed to being a better person than I was yesterday or some version yep. of that every single morning. And then when I, you know, and some days I feel like I was really good at that. Some days I wasn't, but the next day was a new day. So it was starting simple, you know? Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely dead on with this. And, you know, obviously BJ Fogg is kind of the person behind the Tiny Habits book and, and that ideology, but it, it all makes sense. The 1% with the compounding interest is exactly what we should be striving to achieve. And, um, you know, the, an interesting thought that I just had as you were talking about your mornings and, and the kind of the way that your brain was functioning. I mean, we all know that... Um, various aspects of our life, whether that's the food we eat, the things we drink, the relationships that we're in, uh, change the way that our brains are, are literally set up, like the physical infrastructure of our brains. And obviously, if your brain is different, your decisions are going to be different. So when you consider what your issue might be, and I don't mean you, I just mean mm -hmm. the general you, um, you consider, let's say my thinking is foggy, or I'm not getting to where I want to go you've got to think that is a reflection of the architecture of my brain. Whatever it is that you're experiencing, if you're experiencing anger, if you are experiencing even sadness, right? These are reflections of the way our brains are wired. And so if you want to get out of those types of situations, you need to change something in your brain. And that can be at the level of a hormone, a neurotransmitter. It can be at the level of a connectivity, how strongly different areas of the brain are connected to each other. Or it can even be at the physical layer of the neurons, right? Or the, you know, the, the connections between the neurons, the long-term potentiation and depression. These are all the things that we can change through our decisions. But interestingly enough, they also are the things that kind of create our decisions. The point being... If you're in a state that you don't want to be in, then you need to make a change to the part of your body that is causing you to experience that state. And my sense is that as humans in general, we tend to go towards things like the mind, right? Well, my mind wasn't in the right spot. I was out of my mind, whatever that might be. And it's, mm. it's kind of a cop out because I don't know what the mind is. I don't know if you're right. able to define it better than I can. I don't know that it exists. It's kind of a created term a catch-all for, you know, something along the lines of a soul and identity. I'm not sure. But from a pragmatic perspective, if you're in a place that you don't want to be in, I think it's a lot more helpful to think about what are the things in your brain and your body that you can change than it is to talk about where your mind was at. I mean, I think the mind is kind of the superficial level of something was going wrong with who I am. But if you can start nailing it down, it does two things. One is it enables you to be more 
explicit about what you're changing. It gives you a whole lot more variables that you can work with, but also it gets you out of this cycle of blaming this identity mind thing for all of your problems. It's, oh, well, if it wasn't for me being the problem, then I could move forward. Well, is that helpful? I mean, you, we are all a combination of all of these cells and all these impulses, and that creates who we are as people. So you can just blame yourself as an identity, or you can start saying, maybe what I need to work on is my neurotransmitters, or maybe what I need to work on is my immune system, or maybe it's my gut lining. Then you're, you know, you're making progress. Um, but it requires us to reconceptualize this narrative of self-blame for all of our problems. And it starts becoming uh, like a puzzle. It's here are all the pieces that I'm aware of and where is something going wrong? And then what can I do to start remedying that problem? Yeah. Awareness is key. It's something I, you know, uh, it's kind of the foundation of everything that I do is helping people build awareness. Um, I have one question for you and then I would, I'd like to transition to um, letting you talk more about what every average everyday people can do um, because that's, I think that's most important. Although a lot of my listeners will certainly get something out of my question. I'm sure. Um, I, cause I can talk to you all day. (laughs) Um, So when it comes to alcohol, as you know, I'm a recovered alcoholic, spent 20 years drinking daily. um, And I would drink to the point of blackout drunk almost every day. uh, And I would only sleep between four and five hours a night in a blackout. So I'd like for you to talk to me or talk to the audience really about the, uh, the short-term, long-term effects of number one, I guess a two-part question, number one, the alcohol, and then number two, um, the combination of that and the sleep deprivation and what that does to our physical brain. Sure. Well, um, as it relates to these two questions, I'd say I'm I have a lot more experience in the science of sleep than I do with alcohol as a whole. But um, what I can say is, you know, the, the systems that are affected by alcohol and, and I should say, you know, alcohol, it's such a big topic, right? I mean, there are articles out there about why you should have a glass of wine each day for your heart health that has something to do with low levels of resveratrol and antioxidants. not really a huge fan of that. I think if you want to have the alcohol, that should be because you enjoy it and you can get your antioxidants elsewhere. Right. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, all the way up to really what you're describing, the, the types of situations that lead to life-threatening conditions like liver failure. And certainly in my time in the hospital, I, I saw a lot of that. Um, but the point is that, you know, alcohol is uh, it's a poison to the body. It's a known carcinogen. And um, it just happens to have some cognitive effects that people enjoy. And so, you know, there's a lot to break down there. You can go through the pathways, the the GABA pathways that are activated or deactivated in the brain. You can talk about other neurotransmitters. You can talk about uh, levels of consciousness. You can talk about how, you know, there's the lack of um, kind of suppression um, and relative inhibition that comes from drinking alcohol and and what are kind of the reasons that a person may have for trying to blunt some of the um, thoughts that come in a sober state. But, you know, I guess as a a general thought here, um, I having, you know, heard back and forth the, the benefits of a bit of alcohol and the downsides to a bit of alcohol, I think it's just 
it's clear that it's not good for us as a whole. And while there may be a kind of uh, small peak there for benefit or a U-shaped curve, depending on how you look at it, uh, as far as cardiovascular and protective benefits, I'd say if you're, if you're doing that, then you really should look at it more, um, I think, from the social and psychologically beneficial perspective and not as a health intervention per se. So let's then move to the, again, the piece that I'm more familiar with, mm -hmm. which is the sleep impact. And certainly just for people who are, you know, maybe not with huge issues with alcohol, but there's, as you know, probably quite well, uh, a large cohort of people who engage in binge drinking in college um, and who are finding themselves in a cycle of, you know, passing out after leaving a party or whatever, and, and trying to also at the same time optimize to do well on tests and to be thinking well, or let's say you're just drinking and trying to go to work and perform the next day. It doesn't work, right? We all know what a hangover feels like. Well, not all of us, but many of us know. Um, but also the quality of sleep with alcohol consumption is, is not good. Um, and there's a, a faulty assumption that as long as your eyes are closed and you're unconscious, you're getting good rest. And it's just not the case. So alcohol throws all of that off because what you really want in good sleep is to have a, a solid ratio of non-REM or deep sleep and REM sleep. Um, and so it tends to be that you get more non-REM sleep as a whole in the first part of the night and more REM sleep as a whole in the second part of the night. And you go through these cycles where you start out in uh, the higher stages of sleep and then go into the, the lower or that, I guess, the deeper stages of deep sleep. And then you go up and you have your REM time. And if you're drinking or doing other things that even drinking caffeine that compromise your sleep on the first end of the night while you're metabolizing caffeine or metabolizing alcohol, you're not getting those stages in the way that you should. So why does any of this matter as it relates to sleep? Sleep seems like a relatively boring subject. And mm -hmm. at least for me, I was always of the mind early in life, early on in life that not needing sleep was a good thing. You weren't productive when you were sleeping. And if I wanted to be a great doctor, I should be used to getting a couple hours of sleep. And it was actually the case that in training, people would brag about how little sleep they got. Oh, I was up all mm -hmm. night studying. I pulled it in all nighter. And it was, oh, wow, you're so dedicated. How cool. Um, and it's just so backwards. Mm. And the reason for that is we know that sleep deficit, that not getting enough sleep is a risk factor for basically everything that could matter. So cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, mental health conditions like anxiety and depression, and even schizophrenia. Um, so these are things that we don't want. And yet we still are setting ourselves up for poor sleep. We are still prioritizing watching that last episode of whatever, or spending a little bit more time on the phone while we're not sleeping. And, um, you know, there are so many reasons for this. Um, I think one of the big ones, especially these days, especially right now when we're talking during the pandemic is that we're just on our screens mm. and there's always time to check your Instagram one more time before bed. Um, there's always time to check your email one more time before bed. And why that's a problem is two big reasons. One is that's very activating. These are instances in which our brains start to turn on, light up, and in many cases activate the stress response, especially if you're checking the news before bed, let's say, or your email. Um, as we go to sleep, our cortisol levels, our stress hormone, they're supposed to go down. So you're 
kind of lowest point of cortisol should be around midnight. And then it should start going up again to get you prepared for the next day. But if you're giving yourself a jolt of that sympathetic activation, that cortisol activation before bed, it's not going to do you any favors as far as falling asleep. And I don't need to really explain this from a scientific perspective because anyone who's gone to bed stressed knows that it's not the best thing for falling into a nice night of sleep, right? So that's not good. But the other thing is these devices put out high levels of blue light. And so there's a spectrum of visible light. Blue light is part of that spectrum. Why does that matter? It's because blue light in our brains is interpreted as it's a new day, early in the day, bright sunlight, right? It's telling our brains, this is the time to be awake. So when you get blue light coming in through your eyes, your brain says, let's be ready to be awake. And so it's damaging to our sleep cycles. We know that people who are exposed to things like e-readers before bed tend to get worse sleep. So again, some very basic reasons why we're not getting good sleep and some very easy things for people watching this to be thinking about if they feel the quality of their sleep isn't that good. If they're giving themselves that sleep window, which really should be at least seven hours per night for the average person, and they're still not waking up feeling refreshed. But why, again, should we be caring about sleep? So maybe just talking about depression and cardiovascular disease isn't doing it for you. You think to yourself, okay, fine, but I'm eating healthy, so why should I care so much about sleep? Well, the interesting stuff is how sleep affects our emotional state and our decision-making. And that's really what we try to get into in the book, because I think that's the stuff that people don't know about. And so, again, coming back to this question of what is it we're trying to get to in life, um, if you're trying to get to a better job, if you want to make more money, if you want to have better relationships, if you want to be happier, right? Whatever it is, you're going to need to make certain decisions to make that happen. If you want to get a better job, then you need to show up at work and you need to be on your A game, right? You need to close that deal or whatever it is that you do for work. In order to do that, you need to have your brain on board. And in order to do that, you need sleep. So there's the scientific reasoning as to why this happens, which we can get into in a moment. But what people need to understand is that even one night of poor sleep is going to make your brain more reactive. So studies have shown that after one night of sleep deficit, the part of the brain called the amygdala, which is one of the more reactive parts of the brain, um, is more active in response to kind of negative imagery. So that's indicating to me that your emotionally reactive center of the brain is more active when you don't get enough sleep. And we also know that there is a connection between the prefrontal cortex and this part of the brain again called the amygdala, which is essential for self-regulation. And that after a couple nights of sleep deficit, there's decreased connectivity in these brain scans when they look at those two regions of the brain. So what does this all translate into is when you don't get enough sleep, you're more emotionally reactive, you're obviously not going to make as good of decisions, your attention isn't there. I mean, anyone trying to drive for 18 hours in a row knows that when you don't get sleep, you can't focus. So again, regardless of the outcome that you want, sleep is going to make it more likely for you to be able to follow through and get to that outcome. And the last kind of just general interesting thing that I would mention about sleep, and I'm happy to, to talk more about sleep if, if you want, but um, is this recent discovery in the last decade or so of something called the glymphatic system, which is a drainage mechanism for the brain that is preferentially activated in sleep. So we know that all aspects of the brain, any living cell is going to create waste. And we know that when that waste piles up, it's just like if the trash isn't taken up, it's not great. And the brain 
tissues, the neurons of the brain, they create this waste. And so you've got to get rid of that. And unfortunately, some of that waste is stuff like amyloid, which we know is built up in diseases like Alzheimer's disease. So if you want to get rid of that waste, how do you do it? Turns out sleep. Sleep opens up the spaces between these cells in the brain and it lets that waste get flushed out. So again, just kind of an interesting point here, but if you're looking for reasons to start getting that better sleep, there are so many of them. Yeah, there sure is. Uh, something you know, it's something I've struggled with my whole life. And, you know, I, I still, you know, even the past few years, I've been, um, you know, trying to dial in every part of my health and, uh, and my mind is a big part of that. And sleep is a big part of that. And I, um, I still struggle, you know, I have to, it's hard. It, I think sleep comes naturally to some people. Um, but, you know, for me, I have, I have to focus on like dialing every little thing in, in order for me to get seven hours. Like if I get seven yeah. hours, I'm good. Like that's a good night's sleep, you know? Um, you know, and, and the more I focus on it, the better it gets. Um, but it, and it's a, it's the, uh, it's a macro effect too. It's not like, it's the little things we do day after day after day that compiles the compounds and, yeah. and gets us more restful sleep on a, consistent basis not just about one night good sleep or two nights it's the it's the big picture so um yeah yeah and i think it is sleep is kind of a and our ability to get good sleep is a microcosm for the larger picture uh, it's a question of what is and what is not within our control mm. and the more that we can do to optimize for sleep the better and so you know one of the things we give as recommendation is to try to make your room a sleep sanctuary you may not be able to control what happens to you throughout the day. You might have a, a stressful job. You might have a stressful relationship. You may have other situations going on in your life that make it hard for you to get good sleep. But as much as possible, when you go into your bedroom, whatever that looks like, try to control for a couple of variables. One is minimizing the amount of light that gets in. One is keeping it a bit cooler, right? So 65 to 70 degrees is probably better than 70 to 75 degrees. We know the body likes to be a bit cooler during sleep. Try to keep your phone outside of the room so you're not distracted by that. So it, it's really these types of things. You know, we can't create this perfect situation where we have no stress in our lives and we get seven to eight hours of sleep and don't have to worry about what happens the next day. We all, well, I think at least I do, I lay there in bed and the first couple of minutes it's, oh, but you forgot about this and yeah. tomorrow this thing's happening that you really should have been on top of but you know the more that we can be able to have the narrative in our head too of it's more important for me to sleep than it is for me to worry about these things right now it's you know it's kind of the whole mindfulness meditation piece where it's you're starting to um, gain some perspective over your mind again whatever mm -hmm. that means but those rambling thoughts in your head that make it so hard for you to do what it is you're trying to do. Right. Yeah, I could, I can definitely talk about sleep, optimizing sleep all day. So um, <laughs> we, um, I'd like to move into some things that, you know, on a, on a higher level, maybe some actionable things that listeners can start doing to, to really make a shift with their brain, their physical brain, so that it starts benefiting them, you know, psychologically and spiritually and, and, you know, from an energy perspective. Um, so what are like, let's say you're speaking to somebody for the first time and you have, you know, the next 10 minutes to tell them what it, 
you know, here's, here are the first things you need to start focusing on uh, with your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this is a, a really big conversation. I don't mean I the 10 minute conversation that's obviously limited, but this conversation about the backstory to it. And uh, you mentioned already the awareness thing. I think that uh, can't be escaped in any conversation. Um, and even if it's not explicitly brought up, it's something that we need to be aware of. Mm. So, so I guess, let's say there are all these different contexts, but the context in which you're hanging out with a friend and that friend um, is doing some things that you don't think are good for them. There may be no situation in which you can just tell them to do something differently and they will do that, right? We've, I think we've all had that experience. We, mm -hmm. friend, family member, whatever, you think I'm worried about them, I don't like their decisions, and you try to just tell them what to do differently. And not only does it not work, but then they kind of don't like you as much anymore because they view you as judgmental and helpful, whatever. So that's a question of saying, um, with this person, whoever that person is, where are they at in all of this? What do they want from me? What are they willing to receive from me? And I think that also protects you because as somebody who is trying to perhaps change minds, um, you don't want to be in a position where you're constantly force feeding people information and they're not taking it, right? It's, it's planting the seed and then they have to be the ones that allow it to be watered and to grow. So Again, you got this 10 minute conversation with whoever that might be. Um, in my case, let's say it's a patient. If that person comes in and they're drinking uh, a big Slurpee and they're eating a bag of potato chips and you know they're 100 pounds overweight, I will probably be obligated by the legal system of medicine or by reimbursement, I should say, to tell them about their weight. Mm. And that means I have to tell them they're overweight as though they don't know that. And then I have to tell them that being overweight is bad for their health. Again, as though they don't know that. Or you know, to come back to the earlier example, if you're somebody coming in who is drinking too much alcohol, I have to tell you that that's not good for you. And I have to ask you if you would like help in quitting. Not always the best step. So I think the first piece is to have an understanding of where that person is, and then to have an understanding of where your relationship is with that person at the moment, right? It's to say, where can I be helpful to? them. They not, may not be in a situation where they want anything explicit as far as advice. Instead, they may be in a situation where they just need companionship and somebody who is reliable, right? And maybe down the road, then you can start offering them if they want that advice, depending on where they're at in that spectrum from not being aware to aware. So that's kind of like the psychological backing. And, and I wanted to make that clear because I think, again, in these types of conversations, people go right to the, here are the three things that you need to do. Eat less carbohydrates, get better sleep, and get 20 minutes of exercise a day. Okay, fine, great. But that's not necessarily helpful to everyone. So with that said, um, let's go into, if you have a listener who wants to start making the positive changes to improve their brain health, what are the most uh, practical steps for that stage? If you're ready to make a change, you want to know what can I add to my day or change from my day. So we can kind of go through each of these sequentially, but my blanket recommendations for starting with nutrition. So again, to reemphasize this, if you get to the moment of decision-making and you're forcing yourself, you've done something wrong. It's all about planning for the future. Mm -hmm. So decide what it is you're trying to get to in health. If you want to lose some weight, great. If you want to be able to run a 5K, great. Certainly ask yourself why you want those things. I think that's kind of a difficult question, but ask yourself why. If you want to run the 5K because 
you've always wanted to do something like that before and you think it'd be a great first step in, in getting better health. Okay, wonderful. But maybe it's not a 5K, right? Maybe it's just getting outside and walking a few times a week. You want to set a, a reasonable goal. In any case, going back to the, the food piece. So I tell people, eat food that people have messed with the least. Eat the stuff that hasn't been processed. And so as it relates to the macronutrient groups, you've got your fats, you've got your proteins, you've got your carbohydrates. Starting with fats, it is one thing to eat fat as it's found in, let's say, a wild salmon, right? It is one thing to eat an avocado. It is another thing entirely to eat fat coming from an animal that has been given a whole bunch of chemicals and hormones. Um, it is another thing to be eating fat that comes from a processed vegetable oil that you're getting in uh, a fast food store. So why is this important? It's because in general, overprocessing causes inflammation. Inflammation appears to dysregulate good decision-making in addition to being associated with basically every disease that is a problem in the modern day. So again, you want to look for things that have been minimally processed. You want to look for uh, in fats, try to eat things like poly and monounsaturated fat, oversaturated fat, but I mean, even there, there's some nuance. So in general, get fat from things like nuts and things like vegetables, like avocado and olive oil. And also I'm a proponent of polyunsaturated fatty acids, specifically omega-3s, which are best achieved through eating fish or taking a fish-based supplement, can also be um, received in lower levels through things, I shouldn't say lower levels, but maybe not as helpful through things like chia seeds, hemp seeds, and flaxseed oil. Um, there are also algae-derived supplements that you can take if your goal is not to eat animal products. Okay, and then moving on to proteins. Again, things that people have messed with the least, the least processed stuff. What are proteins that have been highly processed? Things like lunch meats, things like, again, animals that have been raised on food feedlots. The reason being, Again, these things contribute to inflammation. Inflammation is bad for all of your body, but also seems to be especially bad for your brain. So you want to avoid proteins that have been messed with by humans. That includes a lot of farm-raised fish, if possible. I would say, you know, much better to eat a farm-raised salmon than to eat a hamburger from a fast food restaurant, but it's all about choosing your battles. Okay, and then finally, carbohydrates. And this is obviously an area that there's a lot of conversation Unfortunately, most carbohydrates have been processed. So when you go to the store and you see basically anything in any of the aisles that isn't around the outskirts of the store, that's going to be refined carbohydrates. It's added to almost everything. And it's in part because the carbohydrate structure has been modified by taking away the fiber, taking away the nutrients. So if you look at white bread, there's a reason it's white, not because the wheat is white, but because they've literally taken out the stuff that's good for you and the white is all that's left. But also there are these very basic carbohydrates or simple kind of carbohydrates, in this case, sugars that are added to most foods and most drinks. So your high fructose corn syrups and a vast variety of a whole bunch of other sugars that they add to stuff to make them flavorful. And so this is processing, right? This is humans messing with stuff. That's bad. It causes inflammation. It is going to lead to, in the long run, all the conditions we try to avoid. And also it's going to compromise your thinking. So what should you be doing here instead? I'm not one of those people. One of those people. I, I eat carbohydrates. Um, <laughs> I know there's a huge debate on this, uh, but I think eating carbohydrates as they're originally intended is not a huge deal. Not for everyone mm. and maybe not long-term. I think that doing some 
keto or paleo um, can be a nice intervention. But at a practical level, I think if you choose to eat, especially gluten-free grains um, at a moderate level, that's probably fine. Mm -hmm. um, so again, this is my blanket statement for food is eat things people have messed with the least. Try to eat things that have been minimally processed. And the reasons for that, yeah, I know, again, food, health, all the problems. But if you want to optimize for brain function, what you want to do is minimize inflammation. You want to minimize this chronic immune activation of your brain because in order, well, again, coming back to this idea, if you're thinking anything, that is a reflection of the way your brain is wired. And when your brain is messed up and wired in a different direction, as is the case with chronic inflammation, because that literally changes the connections and everything, you're going to be making worse decisions. So to optimize for better decisions, eat foods that people have not messed with. Um, so that's, that's my general food kind of statements. Is there anything that I can clarify on that? Uh, no, I think that's, that's spot on. Um, exactly what I would, you know, a little bit more you know, in depth, what I would tell somebody as well. I mean, it's, um, I think the takeaway from listeners from that should be like the awareness of how much food actually affects your physical brain and your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, just think about this. What is your brain made of? Mm. Where do those molecules come from? right? Where do the proteins, the fats come from? They come from the food you eat. So yeah. of course, if you're eating different foods, your brain makeup will be different. You can only make something out of what is available and especially things that are essential. For example, essential fatty acids. Why do we call them essential fatty acids? Because you can't necessarily get them unless you eat them, right? Your, right. your body can't make them in large quantities. You need to eat them. It's the same thing with things like vitamins, right? You can only make certain things in your body, other things you have to take in. If you don't, for example, if you don't eat B12, you're going to have problems. Your body needs you to eat that. And so coming back to this idea of your brain function, you are having to give your brain the building blocks to make it what it is. But what's interesting is you can kind of tweak the way that it develops by giving it the right building blocks so that it doesn't build some sort of you know crumbly sandcastle version based on the processed food that you're putting in. And so especially as it relates to lipids, fats. Why? Because the brain is mostly, the solid weight is mostly fat. So we really want to be thinking about when we eat fats, are those fats that are helpful to the brain or not helpful to the brain? And that's why there's a lot of emphasis around things like omega-3s, not because omega-3s are the most common fats found in the brain, but because they comprise a big component of that. And because these are fats that do a lot more than just the structural stuff, right? So they actually change the way that the signaling pathways go. And that's why, in part, people are so excited about things like wild fish and the like for brain health, because they contain these molecules that are linked to lower levels of inflammation, which, again, is bad for the brain. Absolutely. And let me just say that, you know, as a health and fitness professional of 23 years, uh, we've been talking about, uh, these are all the things that we've been talking about, or I should say that I've talked to talk about like with with clients and and teaching and training other trainers to educate them for to help people with the nutrition aspect as it relates to the physical body. So this is all that like it's not new stuff, but it's it's important again to know how impactful it is. And if somebody asked me about a physical fitness change or physical body change. What you just said 
about the brain is the same. The brain is a physical organ and we need to treat it just like we treat our body, if not better. And it, you know, the first change starts with everything we put in our body. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, uh, I had the privilege of interviewing Michael Merznick, who was one of kind of like the discoverers of this neuroplasticity notion. And something that he said was, you know, your brain is you. It's, it's what makes you you. And yet still it is, it's another physical element of the brain or of the body, I should say. Um, this is no longer quoting Dr. Merzenich. This is just me. But um, we have this idea that the brain and that self are somehow not connected, right? That, that there's this version of us, there's this continuous version of us, the self, um, with certain preferences, with certain ideas that is not really related to the brain itself. And it's obviously not the case, right? I mean, I don't know how many times you have to see a person who is uh, a person who is drowsy. Are they themselves? They're not completely awake. A person who has dementia, are they completely themselves? Um, a person who is even sick and has a fever and is a little bit off, are they completely themselves? It just doesn't work unless you are willing to say that the self is a reflection of the brain. And so when you appreciate that, I mean, again, what is the self? Just like the mind, it's kind of a created term. But when you appreciate that, then you can say, just like I want to exercise my biceps so that my biceps become bigger, more healthy, um, and stronger, that there are things that you can do to exercise or improve the quality of your brain. And with the bicep muscle, you could say, well, if I work on my bicep muscle, then not only is it going to look great, and so I can do some great photos, um, but I'll be able to curl more weight, right? That's kind of the function. It enables us to curl. With the brain, if you start making these changes, you're going to see those changes not as increased strength, but as clearer thinking, right? As more emotional regulation, as the ability to make better decisions. So these are the things I think we need to be talking about because they are within our control. And we like to just, again, look at personality traits or look at decisions as something that's immutable. It's outside of our control. It's a reflection of the self, but no, it's not. It's a reflection Mm -hmm. of our brain structure. And that's what neurogenesis and neuroplasticity is all about. It's the idea that we can create new brain cells. It's the idea that we can change the connection between those brain cells over the course of our lifetimes. So it's, it's within our control, but really the first piece here is again, getting back to the concept of awareness is understanding that it's within our control. It's the meta awareness that our thinking itself is something that we can alter through our choices. And it's so empowering, but I think it takes a moment for that to really settle in. Absolutely. Um, So as it relates to the food and because everything, you know, we, we talk about like everything is connected and, you know, and which it is. And um, so as it relates to the food putting into our stomach, let's talk about, the the connection with the gut and our brain function yeah uh what connection no really there is (laughs) let's start with the basic what is the gut um so the gut is it's the digestive tract it's commonly referred to as you know the intestines and really people focus on the large intestine because that's where the microbiome or the gut microbiome primarily lives but the gut is really starts at the mouth goes all the way to the anus includes all these other organs you know the liver stomach um and why is that important you know for a long time it was you have gut issues 
or you have brain issues, or you have both, but they're not really connected. And obviously that's false, right? Everything in the body is connected. Everything relates to everything else. But what I think is the best way to conceptualize this is our bodies and our brains are a reflection of our interaction with the outside world. It's basically how does the outside world influence our DNA? Those are the variables. Unless there's something else that I'm missing, you start with your DNA and that DNA is exposed to your environment. And over time, that leads to different phenotypes, right? And different phenotype, meaning the way that you look, your, the way that you express yourself and such. So then the question is, where is that data stream coming from that makes you you, that is affecting your DNA? We always talk about the basics, like the senses, right? So I saw something and therefore I now am different, or I heard something and therefore now I think about the world differently. But it turns out that a ton of that data is being received through your body's gut. What is that data? It's your food, right? It's all that food. When you eat food, that is sending a signal. That is information that your body is needing to incorporate so that it can better adapt to the environment. So for example, if you're running out of food, your body is going to interpret that and say, oh my goodness, uh, resources are scarce. And it's going to change your programming completely. We know that in the fasted state, various pathways are turned on. For example, you have higher levels of BDNF in the brain, which is actually a good thing, but you also dampen a pathway called mTOR, which we don't have to get into all of that stuff right now. But again, to say that if you're not eating food, your body interprets that as information and it makes the necessary changes. Similarly, if you're eating certain foods, your body is going to say, hmm, here's what's going on in the world around me. Here's how I need to adapt to it. It's going to take those little building blocks of the food and put them in different places in your body depending on what that food is. And so then that kind of brings us to the, the other piece of this puzzle, which is, so yes, the food itself is being translated into signals that are reaching your brain, that are reaching your entire body and changing who you are, but also your microbes. Depending on the source you look at, it is thought that we have in our bodies, on our bodies, around 30 trillion or so bugs. Um, and so of these, we talk primarily about the bacteria and there are a bunch of other bugs. There's archaea, there's viruses, there's fungi, all these other things, but the bacteria are interesting. And that's why when you hear about the gut microbiome, we are primarily talking about the bacteria that live primarily in the large intestine. That's where the concentration is the highest. So why does this matter at all? It's because these bacteria are also in constant communication with our bodies. It's not like there's the bacteria and then there's us. These guys are always talking, sharing information, sharing molecules. So those bacteria actually create molecules by digesting our food that reach our brain. Those bacteria create molecules that influence our immune system, which then influences our brain. And all of these things are interconnected. And there's a, a couple of major pathways between the gut and the brain. The big one you'll probably hear discussed the most is the neural pathways. So that has to do with the enteric nervous system, which is kind of a localized nervous system in the gut called the second brain uh, by some people. And then you have the autonomic nervous system, which, pause me if this is getting too annoyingly technical mm -hmm. in any way, but so you have the autonomic nervous system, two branches, sympathetic, parasympathetic, already mentioned sympathetic earlier, associated with the stress system. The parasympathetic nervous system is associated with typically rest, digest, more of the kind of maintenance of homeostasis. 
And the parasympathetic nervous system has like this one nerve that everyone's always talking about called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve runs from the gut to the brain. Mm -hmm. We had thought, or I had thought in an incorrect way, that these nerves of which the vagus nerve is one, uh, which are called the cranial nerves, send information from the brain to the rest of the body. And that's kind of what they do. And maybe they take some signals back to say, here's how that information was used, right? So they drop off the information and say, oh, how are things going? I got to report back to the brain and that's it. It turns out that most of the pathways in this vagus nerve run from the gut to the brain, not the other way around, which is fascinating because it means that it's more important to get the information from the gut to the brain than from the brain to the gut. So what is that information? It's what's going on in the outside world. It's, is there inflammation in the gut because it has too many un unhealthy bacteria? It's, are we eating enough fiber? It's, um, is there uh, a place of fasting? Do we have the resources to be able to continue to build muscle or do we need to take a pause and do we need to do a clean out? Again, deactivating that mTOR pathway. So the vagus nerve is going to convey information from the gut to the brain and tell the brain, here's what's going on in the world around us. The other last thing I will mention here, so obviously this is a, is a complex topic, but the gut microbiome, again, these bacteria that live in our gut, they create a whole bunch of metabolites. Um, they create a whole bunch of chemicals. Some of those bind to the terminals of these nerves, like the vagus nerve, and they go up, they get transmitted into electrical and chemical signals in the nerves, and then they get converted into signals in the brain. But these gut microbes also create something called short-chain fatty acids. And again, you probably know about this stuff, but I think it's important to note. So what are short-chain fatty acids? They are a gut microbiome byproduct of the microbes, the bacteria, metabolizing fiber. So the food that you eat, when you eat fiber, it's broken down by the gut. Specifically, the, the gut is able to break down fiber that our bodies can't. So it's not like it's, you, know, you were going to eat that. It's basically just there to help the gut. These microbes eat the fiber. They create something called short-chain fatty acids. Those short-chain fatty acids have effects throughout the body, but notably, the brain. It has all these receptors for these short-chain fatty acids, or all these impacts of these short-chain fatty acids. And so those things influence our cognition, not just through kind of the more direct pathways, but by influencing levels of neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, and inflammation in the brain. So what you see is this incredibly dynamic interplay between the outside world, which, you know, the food that we eat, and then the inside world. And kind of at the uh, barrier between these two things is the gut microbiome. And it's what it means to the average person beyond, I think, being just an interesting thing is that if we want to be working on our brain health, if we want to be working on our cognition, we've got to be thinking about these pathways and specifically how we can optimize our, our lifestyles so that these pathways are healthy, so that the information going from our gut to our brain is the right information. And the way that you can do that in a very basic way is to be eating dietary fiber. So eating foods high in dietary fiber, what we call prebiotic fiber, which is the fiber that's best to feed these bugs, things like jicama, onions, garlic, kale, right? So plant-based foods contain fiber, not so much with the animal-based foods. It's one of the concerns I have with the carnivore diet. You know, I'm all for experimentation, all for learning, yeah. and maybe carnivore is right for certain people, but you know, the gut microbiome kind of needs the, that fiber. So again, eating fiber, 
And then it turns out it's all the other stuff that we kind of already talked about. So your levels of stress, um, getting enough sleep, even exercising, these are the things that can help that microbiome to be in good shape. In addition to avoiding unnecessary exposure to things like antibiotics and either even over-the-counter drugs like mm -hmm. proton pump inhibitors, which can damage uh, the microbiome. Yep. So the take-home message, your gut and your, uh, your brain are incredibly connected. They have a bunch of pathways that are in constant communication. And so your brain health is a reflection of the health of your gut. So if you want to kind of create this algorithm or just create this organization as far as how many steps can you go backwards to support your brain health, you're going to eventually get to gut health. So you're really, by working on your gut, you're working on your brain and therefore working on your emotions, working on your decision-making. That's awesome. And it is that it is a lot of information. Yes. But I'm the reason I brought it up and I hope everyone stayed in and listened to, to all that, even though it seems like a lot to understand and comprehend. The reason I wanted you to talk about it is because it's not something that's talked about enough. Um, and it's one of the most impactful things um, to our brain and our overall health. And so that's, so I appreciate you taking the time to, to break that down. Yeah. And I think it's just a part of a toolkit, right? I mean, I think we're all much more, well, not everyone, but people are much uh, better able to say there's something wrong than they are to say, here's what it is and here's how to fix it. Mm -hmm. So first step is if, you know, for a person is to say, there's something that I want to improve. There's something wrong. If you're not aware that something's wrong, then why would you change anything? But let's say something is wrong, whether that's your general health, your mental health, whatever it might be, then you have to ask, what can I do to potentially improve this? And for most people, that's going to wind up eventually uh, leading to them going to a doctor's office and getting a prescription, mm. whether that's for their blood pressure or for their mood or whatever it might be. That's kind of the long-term outcome. And the reason for that is because we're not figuring out what we can do to improve that problem. So that's why these types of conversations are important. I'm not saying that fixing your gut is going to help all of your problems. And I'm certainly not going to say that every person needs to do that in order to get their life back on track. But what I am saying is maybe that is your problem. Maybe your problem is not getting enough sleep, right? Maybe your problem is that you don't tolerate carbohydrates very well. I don't know. You know, you could have a gluten allergy. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is unless you have some options available to you as far as things you can change, you're never going to figure it out unless you kind of stumble upon it, right? Unless you wind up on a desert island and the only thing that you can eat is fiber and it fixes your gut and you go, oh my gosh, in that case, you probably think it's the coconut husk and not the fiber. But, you know, what we're trying to do here, I'm, I'm not like a hardcore biohacker or anything, but if something's wrong, there are two options. You, or three, I guess. One is you do nothing. One is you try to fix it on your own. And one is you go other places for help. But I think that having some opportunity to make changes in our lives before we wind up, you know, five years from now on insulin for preventable diabetes is so key. Because obviously what we're doing right now isn't working. And it's a reflection of the bigger societal issue, which is mm. that we, we have a problem and we mask it with solutions that make the problem worse, whether that's with um, our general health or our mental health. You know, you, you feel bad because your relationship fell apart. And so then you go and you eat a bunch of ice cream, which increases inflammation, which makes you more emotionally reactive, which makes your next relationship fall apart. Mm -hmm. And it's just this is the system that we're all perpetuating. And um, so we've got to take that moment, that pause and say, what actually does work? What, what actually isn't working for me? And um, 
So I hope that if anything, that listeners are, are willing to at least acknowledge uh, the possibility of looking at our problems from that slightly different framing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's so many things. Uh, I mean, food, food reform is a thing on my list that like, I would love to get into not with you, but, or maybe with you someday, but, um, you know, just, there's so much that needs to change societally and yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, I don't want to go off on that, but it's, let me just uh, give a real quick pitch uh, then, um, on that subject. So I think it is, it is a really important subject. My interest in that is primarily the way that our brains have been manipulated into eating these poor foods choices mm -hmm. over the course of our lifespan, especially as it relates to the manipulation of young adult and children's minds to be caught up in this web of eating terrible food. Um, I would endorse Mark Hyman's new book, Food Fix, mm. as a, a far more comprehensive look at what is going on with our food system today, because there are so many different levels at which this is a problem. And, um, you know, it can be overwhelming, uh, but at least that gives an outline as far as here are all the factors that are contributing to our problems today. He, you know, he feels that the majority of our issues today are at least in part um, a reflection of our food issues. And I tend to agree with him. Mm. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, my girlfriend and I talk about it constantly. Um, she's, we're both um, pretty much very, very into, you know, trying to figure everything out with food, you know, yeah. um, whatever's going on in our life and uh, how we feel, energy, every, I mean, anything and everything, it's all, it comes back to food. You know, she's very strict paleo. And I'm a kind of a paleo slash keto. I'm more of a cyclic keto now. Um, I do enjoy my carbohydrates sometimes, but the food is so important. I can't, yep. I, I can't emphasize it enough. Um, yeah. And where, where you're at with that though is, is such an amazing thing, which is that you're willing to experiment and see what it does when you change things around. Um, there is the, there's a tendency, I think, for people in the nutrition sphere um, even lay people who are engaged with the nutrition sphere to basically adopt a specific diet and then uh, dogmatically defend it against anything else. And, you know, I'm a proponent of the ketogenic diet. I've, uh, you know, I've dabbled with it. I've seen the science. I try to, for the most part, um, not eat too many simple carbohydrates and to generally lower my carbohydrates. But there are reasons why it may not be good for everyone. Mm. And, you know, similarly with the whole carnivore vegan debate right now. Come on. Like, is it possible there are people who will do better with more meat? Yes. Is right. it possible there are people who will do better with more vegetables? Absolutely. So starting There's from not a place, one size fits all for, for everybody. Everybody yeah. is different, you know? And yeah. that's what we have to with everything, remember. not just food. Yeah. Um, so obviously there's there's a whole lot more we can discuss here. Uh, one of the other things that I'd like to talk a little bit about um is something that people might not be aware of uh, as it affects your brain, the physical brain as well, is empathy. Yeah. 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 Well, so let's, um, let's talk about empathy a little bit uh, as far as a, a general term. There are thought to be a couple different types of empathy. So there's uh, emotional uh, type of empathy, which is that you feel what another person is feeling. There's cognitive empathy where you can understand it intellectually. Um, and then some people will say compassionate empathy is a third. But um, 
in general, what empathy means is just an understanding of what other people are experiencing, whether that's a felt experience or an intellectualized experience of what other people are experiencing. And um, so I guess, first of all, why does it matter? Well, at a basic level, you need empathy to enjoy life. If you want to have relationships, empathy is essential. Imagine spending time with somebody else and just, first of all, not caring whatsoever what they think and also not understanding at all what they think. Um, it's not gonna go that far. And uh, I, I like to say that in the, in the modern world, um, the biggest possible catastrophes that we face are all characterized by deficits in empathy. So what do I mean by that? Well, what are the things that are most likely to kill off the human race or to make us significantly uh, have significant issues? So one would be climate change. If climate change is a thing, and I think it is, then how do we you know, justify not doing anything about it? The way we do that is we don't worry about the future. We don't worry about other people. We don't worry about our future selves. We continue burning up our resources for the moment and kicking the can down the road. So that's an empathy deficit. All right, what about nuclear holocaust? A really fun topic for everyone. <laughs> um, you know, maybe not as likely as it was a couple of decades ago, but I think uh, given some of the leaders who are currently in power, doesn't seem completely off the table. And I'm thinking about what are the situations in which somebody decides the right next step is to push this button and destroy an entire country. How could that be compatible with empathy, right? feeling for other people, thinking about how these things will affect them. It just doesn't work, right? And so in essence, I see empathy as a higher level human function. There are certain types of empathy. There's a lot of discussion of mirror neurons and the like that seem to exist in uh, primates and other forms in other animals where they care about each other, they feel right what the other animal is uh, experiencing. But the cognitive empathy is really what appears to be a human characteristic that is both unique and so important for us as our success as a species. And that is to understand that there's more to this thing than what we believe, that there's more to this than what we believe in this moment. And um, as it relates to what I see going on in the world right now, the polarization, especially in the United States, it's insane. Um, here we have these two political parties that are just increasingly putting out these horrible statements um, about the other people, these ad hominem attacks and really not discussing the actual problems and coming up with pragmatic solutions because all of the time is spent demonizing the opposing party. Mm. And you see this type of polarization across the board, whether it's religion or political affiliation or geographic location, it doesn't matter. People seem to be becoming more tribal in the way that they look at each other. And that is, again, it's an anti-empathy. There's also this piece of it, which you talk about in the book, which is the narcissism piece. And so narcissism, again, kind of variably defined, um, where you have different types of narcissism, like a grandiose narcissism, where you just feel like you're so great, or a vulnerable narcissism, where you're really not so confident. And so uh, it's, it's a different scenario. But the, the point that, that we make in the book is that a person's sense that they are so much better than everyone else and that they're the only person that matters is really an empathy deficit. And that is an issue too, because again, if our goal is to, depending on where you put your goals, but for most people, your goal is to live a happy, healthy life. That is something that is significantly benefited by empathy. People who have more empathy 
tend to do better. They tend to have better relationships. They tend to be happier. They tend to have lower risk of developing significant diseases. Um, and you know, there's kind of the next level here, which is that social relationships are protective against a bunch of problems, mental, physical health issues. And empathy is essential for good relationships. So empathy, really important. As it relates to the brain, what we talk about here is that specifically this cognitive empathy, the ability to mind read more or less and to see what other people, to understand what other people are thinking is a reflection of the part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. Um, the prefrontal cortex being the most recently evolved part of our brain that sits right here behind the forehead. Lots of different components to the prefrontal cortex, but in general, we think that it is tasked with uh, some really important skills. So things like, again, the ability to maintain function, the ability to maintain, uh, I should start focus, attention, um, but also the ability to think through more complicated problem solving. And so we need this in order to maintain higher levels of cognitive empathy. Let me uh, just transition here to another little uh, kind of side note, which is, is very related. And that is, you know, a lot of people will say, so empathy sounds great, but it's kind of is or it isn't, right? You feel or you don't. And um, it tends to be the case that people see empathy as a challenging thing to, to affect. In the medical research, there are a lot of uh, interventions to improve empathy. And the reason for that is, as you probably expect, uh, patients like doctors who have more empathy. Mm. Imagine that. A patient wants to go to a doctor that seems to care right. about them. But you see outcomes are actually better for patients when their providers have more empathy. So first off, yes, you can increase your empathy. Just thinking about how it might look from somebody else's perspective is an intervention in increasing empathy. But there's kind of some cool ones too. So one that we talk about in the book is nature exposure. Mm. Very random, I know, but why does this matter? When you go out into nature, and especially when you're looking at awe-inspiring nature, big trees, mountains, rivers, ocean, those types of things, you, you realize that you're really not as exciting as maybe you thought you were. Right. The ego collapses a little bit. I love that. I think, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's, it's hard to maintain a really inflated ego, the narcissism piece, and to look up at a giant mountain. Mm. You think, I'm all that, and then okay, wait, this has been here for thousands, if not millions of years, and uh, it will be here long after I'm gone. So that ego piece, uh, the dissolving the ego just a little bit, I think is something that is, is really a great way to increase empathy. And actually, the research has shown this. So not only do people exposed to these natural scenes have more empathy for nature, more nature relatedness, but they have more empathy for other people. So there are a whole lot of things that we can be doing just along the lines of remembering kind of our place in this universe. I like just looking up at the stars sometimes. Not only does it make my problem seem smaller, but it also deflates the egos. Oh, well, I need to be working on achieving blank, blank, or blank. Hmm. Eh, maybe not. Really? Maybe I just Do work I? on it my important? relationships. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, I, um, yeah, I mean, we could, we could talk all day and maybe, maybe we could come back on another time if, if you're open to it. Um, sure. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, how, do you want to touch on a little bit about the, uh, the 10 day, uh, detox that's in the book and sure. yeah. So, uh, for those who have this book or for anybody who might be considering buying the book, we end the book with a 10 day plan and, Really what we're talking about here is how do you apply these interventions that we're talking about? So everything from lowering your exposure to 
damaging technology to exercising, to eating healthier, to getting better sleep, to getting some nature exposure, improving your connections with other people, putting a little mental time, mindfulness into your day, all these things that we kind of know we need to do. We tried to be as pragmatic as possible about here's how you do it. And, you know, I think that to do it in the way it's outlined in the book is a commitment. Um, it basically requires you to stack all of these things in the course mm -hmm. of 10 days just to, just to try to experience them. Not so much because we expect that you can create new habits in the course of 10 days. It's not really been shown in the research that is the case. It takes probably more along the lines of 66 or so days to create a new habit. But because we want people to have exposure to these things, to see what it is like to get a little nature exposure, to see what it is like to close their eyes and have a little bit of mindfulness built into their day. Um, and then really the, the goal here is to, to pick, ideally to get to all of them, but to choose those which are best suited for you, the ones that you can actually apply and to start integrating those into your life. Um, there's this truth that is unfortunate for some, but is un inescapable. And that is that the things that we need to do to have a good life are quite straightforward and they're really known to us already. You can go to all the biohacking sites mm -hmm. and find all the supplements you want. But at the end of the day, it's having good relationships. It's getting some sleep, exercising, eating healthy food, going out into the sun on occasion. These are the things that actually work. And they're not as sexy as taking some nootropic. But it doesn't matter because these things have been around for thousands of years and they will continue to be around for thousands of years and they're really free. Mm -hmm. So the goal then isn't just to know these things to know how to apply them in your day, and I think especially to know how they affect your brain. Our goal here is to get off of this cycle that most people are in of instant gratification, poor decision-making, and on instead to a cycle of good decisions, of satisfaction as opposed to impulsivity and chasing this fleeting happiness. The way that you do that is through these lifestyle interventions. So how do you put that into play? That's what the 10-day plan is all about. It's about making that easy. It's about finding ways to integrate this into your day so that, you know, the long-term goal here is to be doing these things to give you the opportunity to enjoy your life and also to give you the opportunity to do other things if that's what you want, right? So if you want to run that 5K, if you want to find that romantic partner and be present with them and not constantly hoping that they're going to save you from the person you don't enjoy, then you need to have a brain that will let you do that. Mm. And you know, we're not reinventing the wheel here. These things have been known. But I think what people haven't thought about before is how do you look at this from the perspective of improving your cognition, improving your decision making? And also, what are the things that are out there that all of us are experiencing that are incredibly damaging to our decision making, that are keeping us down, that are manipulating us into believing stuff that is completely counter to us living good, healthy lives? Because this is just the, the unfortunate reality of things is that most of the stuff that is out there is kind of set up in such a way that will make your life worse. We bring up the example of food a lot, and that's because most foods contain sugar, mm -hmm. added sweeteners. Most drinks contain added sweeteners. That stuff is not necessary for anyone. There's no need in your body for the sugars that people are adding to these drinks, and especially no need for the artificial sweeteners. We know that these things are damaging to the gut. We know they're damaging to our thinking and inflammation, and yet we keep consuming them the world is set up for us to continue to make poor decisions. So unless we get out of that cycle, mm -hmm. we should expect to have poor outcomes. Yep. That's really what we're trying to do is just create a little bit more insight into how bad it's gotten and what are the things that a person can do if they're interested in climbing out of that hole.
Amazing brother. That's good stuff. I'm so excited that you came on and there's just so much we can jump into. And um, unfortunately, there's, there's not enough time. Plus, I don't want you to give away the whole book because I want people to go buy your book and I'm not getting anything from it. Am I? No. Um, I, it's just really an amazing book. Um, there's, it's packed full of information. Again, the most practical guide to changing your brain and changing your life that I've seen. Uh, in my years, and um, it and it's I don't know how much it is twenty bucks maybe, it can really change your life, and uh, I would absolutely recommend you getting it and put it into practice, and don't make it just information because information is useless without without action, and the things that are in this book are actionable things that are easy to do, and I promise you within a week, and I love the ten day thing because I promise you within a week or so. Um, you're going to feel different. You're going to see a change. You're going to maybe see a physical difference. You're definitely going to feel a mental a cognitive difference and a psychological difference. Your mood's going to change. Um, all these things that it's packed in this book is just um, everybody needs to get it. And uh, everyone, everyone needs I'm a copy of this you. book. I know. You're, everyone I know. knows. <laughs> and, but I, I believe, I firmly believe this, this is a book that everyone needs for their life and to teach their children and it's a, it's a huge thing on my list to work towards is, is helping our adults teach our children better, you know, better, like healthier lifestyle choices and healthier habits and, and teach them yeah. a bit more about food and how our brains work. And there's so much work that needs to be done. And I'm so grateful for what you and your dad do and your dedication to, to making this change in the world uh, through changing our brains. Oh, Pat, I really appreciate that. And um, just to your last point there, I completely agree. It's, it's become so apparent that if we want these things to stick, we have to be thinking about how we're influencing our children because, mm. um, you know, that mental manipulation starts at such an early age that sets us up for these lifetimes of poor decision-making. But for those of us who are listening, right, for the adults, realize that that change has to start with you, mm. that you can't be teaching your kids stuff that you don't know. Um, and so I think just developing that that mindfulness around what it is we're actually doing and, and how our thought patterns are either helpful or hurtful to us is so important. It's something that, um, you know, I've been trying to learn more about as the years go on, but really wish was something that I learned in my early adulthood mm -hmm. would have saved me some time, yeah. but you know, it's, it's yep. the growth that comes from the discovery, right? Exactly. Exactly. All right. So how can everybody find you? Where are you at? Social media, website, whatever, else, whatever you got. Let yeah. them know. Uh, so my website is austinperlmutter.com. Again, it's just my name.com. Um, if you're interested in the book, you can either find a link on my website or there's a dedicated book website, which is brainwashbook.com. And then I have either fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure, some social accounts. Um, I'll just give my Instagram. <laughs> it's at Austin Perlmutter. If that's something that, that you like to do, you can connect with me there. And um, I've actually started my own podcast so sweet. If you want to hear more from me, you can yeah. find that on my website. Nice. Nice. And you can find his Instagram on mine if you're on mine. Um, and I'm also going to put everything on the show notes too. Uh, wherever you find this podcast or video, uh, it'll be in the show notes. So if you're driving, um, you can just go check out the, you can go to the pet king show.com and, uh, or you can check out the Facebook pages, which is 
Facebook backslash uh, the Pat King show as well. And, uh, everything will be there, man. Thank you so much, Austin. This has been yeah. awesome. And, uh, I look forward to hopefully having you on again and, uh, digging in some, into some other things. If you want to collaborate on anything offline, uh, about some of the stuff we talked about, I'm happy to help you in any way I can serve you to help better your, uh, help, help you in your purpose. Um, please let me know. I appreciate that. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all for tuning in. And uh, till next time, take care. Bye-bye. Hey, hey, hello there. Well, you made it through. And most importantly, you did not die from me boring you to death. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for tuning in. I very much appreciate it. Uh, if you have any questions, please reach out with questions. I'm going to be doing a Q&A session, hopefully weekly, starting next week. Um, and you can submit questions at askpatking.com. And if you just want your questions answered via email or something, uh, just let me know. That's fine too. I can do that for you. And I answer every question personally. And if you uh, have more questions about our guests from today's show, uh, you can check out the show notes for all the episodes at thepatkingshow.com. Uh, and always looking for guests to tell their stories. And everyone has a story. You have a story. It could be something you went through that somebody else is going through right now that could really help impact their life and help them shift to go a different direction, knowing that they're not alone, that other people have gone through what you've gone through. So if you're willing to share your story, please submit your story at askpatking.com. Uh, in the form and just put uh, podcast guest in the subject line. And I would be happy to get back to you and we can discuss that and we'll have a little call. So, and you can always email me with questions as well, pat at patking.com. And thank you so much again for tuning in. I really do appreciate it from the bottom of my, of my heart. And hopefully you got something out of this episode. Thank you and have a beautiful day.